Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 6. It's kind of unfortunate that there's a chapter break here because in Ezra 5, the tension is building around whether or not this rebuilding project will be permitted to proceed. But I suppose that's how good stories are written, and this is a good story. It's a true story, but it's also a dramatic story filled with twists and turns, surprises, disappointments, and gut-wrenching cliffhangers. And this is one of those. As you will recall, the exiles started the work on the temple compound back in 537 B.C., But then shortly thereafter, a sustained campaign of interference and harassment was undertaken by the Samaritans, such that the work eventually ground to a complete halt. And the people went off to do other things. They had houses to build and fields to plow and harvest. So the work on the temple was abandoned. But then two prophets arose, Haggai and Zechariah, and they began to rebuke the people and they encouraged them to press through all the noise and intimidation and to actually do what they came back from Babylon to do. And so they did. They re-engaged the project, and they began to rebuild in earnest. But then a Persian government official took notice of all this activity happening all of a sudden in Jerusalem. And given the tensions in the region, he decided that he ought to investigate. He saw huge stones being prepared and laid, and he wondered whether this was a temple or a fortress. And I'm sure the Samaritans were whispering all kinds of slander and nonsense in his ear. So he interviewed the leaders of the project. He took down some names. He wrote a report. And he kicked it up the chain of command all the way to King Darius himself, asking for further guidance and instruction. But while that was all happening, the work went on. Whether it would all be torn down again in a few months' time, nobody knew. But they had decided to work. And so work they did, all the while nervously and prayerfully awaiting a reply from the king. In chapter 6, the scene shifts to Babylon and then from there to other administrative centers in the Persian Empire until finally word reaches the exiles back in Jerusalem as to their fate and the fate of the project as a whole. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media. A scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place." 
you shall put them in the house of God. There are several subtle indicators of authenticity in this opening paragraph. Darius was known to be a very able administrator, and he was also known to have deeply respected Cyrus. And so it makes perfect sense for him to have scoured the records so as to ensure that any edict issued by Cyrus was discovered and properly enforced and honored. Now, the fact that the edict was discovered in Ecbatana is also a sign of authenticity. Apparently, Cyrus lived in the city of Babylon in the winter, and then he moved to Susa in the spring, and he spent summers in Ecbatana. It is therefore altogether likely that there would have been official repositories for court documents in each of those locations. And it makes sense that they would have to be searched in some kind of comprehensive way for a document such as this to be located. F. Charles Fensham says here, The discovery of the edict here shows probably that it was promulgated during the summer of 538 B.C., close quote. Now, we already know that it was written in 538 B.C., but the fact that it was found in Ecbatana as opposed to Babylon or Susa indicates with even greater specificity the time of composition. As for the contents, what we have here is obviously a summary. When we get to verse 6, we may be dealing with an actual copy of the return letter that Darius sent to Tatanai. The summary here in verses 3 to 5 simply reiterates what we read in the original edict in chapter 1. Cyrus wanted the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. He wanted it built on the original foundation. He wanted it to be supported by the resources of the local province. He wanted the worship there to be according to the original word and rule of God. That's why he had released the original temple vessels. So Darius finds that edict, and he familiarizes himself with the contents, and then he sends this letter to Tatnai by way of reply. Verse 6. Now therefore Tatnai governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Closed quote. Well, what an incredible turnaround. For almost 20 years, this project had been stalled and largely abandoned because of local interference and harassment. Now, of course, it's easy to imagine how that could happen in a geographically spread out empire like the Persian Empire. 
particularly in a time of transition and upheaval. It must have been very difficult to get clear-cut communication from the capital city. And if you've got local politicians and local tribal leaders actively working to muddy the waters, then of course it's easy to see how this whole delay could have taken place. But now, all of a sudden, clarity breaks through in spectacular fashion. The original edict is renewed and reinforced. The local politicians are put on warning. Darius literally tells them to keep away. He tells them to fund the work even out of the provincial tax revenue. Are you seeing that? This little group, this struggling church, goes from being harassed and persecuted to being authorized and state-funded all in the space of a couple of months. It is truly amazing. I love the summary of this section given in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. Derek Kidner says here, God's frowning providence in allowing the opposition to raise the alarm had not simply concealed his smiling face. It had given a fresh impetus to events by evoking the faith and courage of the builders and releasing a truly royal flow of material help. Closed quote. Those two expressions that he uses there, frowning providence and smiling face, are borrowed, of course, from William Cowper's well-known hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The verse Kidner is alluding to reads as follows. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Sometimes the clouds of our present circumstances are heavy with impending grace. And so we have to trust that God has a plan and a purpose. We have to believe that he has provision for us in whatever trials and testings he may lead us into. The exiles must have worried that this letter from Tatanai would result in the rebuilding project being permanently shut down. But instead, the exact opposite of that happened. It resulted in the project being reauthorized and generously funded. You never know what God is going to do. And that's why you never have to do the right thing the wrong way. You never have to force God's hand. You never have to convince yourself that the ends will justify the means. No, you, you just keep doing what God told you to do. You just keep obeying and you just keep waiting. And in his perfect timing, God will show up and turn the game in the direction of his perfect will and plan. That's what happened here. And we're going to see that happening again and again and again as we continue to track with this story. So a letter came from King Darius reauthorizing the work and giving very specific and forceful instructions as to how that work was to be supported by the provincial administration. We pick up the story in verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. 
So, as you would expect, after a serious and deadly threat, like the one given in verse 11, the local government got behind this project in a big way, and the work went forward with all diligence. Haggai and Zechariah were still there, encouraging the exilic community, and the building project was finished in 516 B.C. Specifically, look at the end of verse 14 there. It was finished by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, that's a fairly interesting phrase. First thing we notice there is the priority given to the decretive will of God. God wanted this done. Therefore, it was done. But then the author goes on to attribute secondary agency to Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes is an interesting addition to that list because he came along afterwards. He didn't become king until the year 465 BC. That's 51 years in the future in terms of the actual completion of the temple. But in reality, this temple was never really finished. They were always working on it. It was completely renovated and significantly enlarged, for example, by Herod the Great. And they were still putting the finishing touches on it in the time of Jesus. So in all likelihood, what the author is doing here is saying that God wanted the temple to be built. And he executed that plan through the agency of a variety of Persian kings, starting, of course, with Cyrus. And then in this story, as we see, he worked through Darius. But, but then later also in the time of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the king in the time of Ezra. So that strengthens the argument for Ezra being the one who put all of this material together, even though he doesn't appear in the story until chapter 7. He is saying here, or perhaps a, a, another scribe, another scholar working under his direction, he's saying, God has been using Persian kings to protect and empower this project since the beginning. And he is continuing to do that even up to the present day. Which is a fascinating concept. These were pagan kings. Darius was a worshiper of Ahura Mazda. He was not a Jew. And yet God used him as he had used Cyrus and as he would later use Artaxerxes. So it isn't only godly kings that God uses. He accomplishes his will through a variety of means and agencies. The fact that they are used doesn't necessarily make them godly. Kings and leaders have to answer to God for their behavior, just like everyone else. But we should simply remember that often human leaders are the levers by which God moves the wheel of human history. As Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, God turned the hearts of some Persian kings. And as a result, the work on the temple was resumed and the will of the Lord was accomplished. Verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. 
The offerings listed here for this rededication ceremony reflect the relative poverty of this post-exilic community. At the dedication ceremony for the original temple, Solomon had offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Here we have less than half of 1% of that. The covenant community has been ground down to a very tiny remnant, but God is with them. And slowly but surely, they are coming back to life in the land. Now, interestingly, verse 17 mentions a sin offering for all Israel and 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel, which may suggest that there were representatives from all of the original tribes at this ceremony and as part of the original returning group. And that could well be. We know that many faithful people immigrated southward during northern Israel's long decline. We know as well that when the Assyrians were invading northern Israel, there was a further flood of refugees southward. So it is entirely possible that there was a, a tiny remnant stock that fully represented the original tribal structure of the covenant community. Again, the author wants to emphasize the legitimacy and the continuity of this little group that is being replanted by God back in the land. Also of note, verse 18 brings us to the end of the first Aramaic section in the book of Ezra. We're back to Hebrew now in verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Let's just pause here. This verse helps us note the date of this event with great precision. According to verse 19, this Passover was held in April 516 BC. Now that is a hugely significant fact. You remember that the number 70, as in 70 years, has played an important role in this story. If you flip back in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1, and then flip back one more page until you're looking at 2 Chronicles 36, you'll see this for yourself. Verses 17 to 21 there tell the story of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 20 to 21. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Closed quote. Now flip over again to Ezra chapter 1 and look at how the story opens. This is Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. So, there is a clock ticking behind this entire story that we've been reading. A 70-year countdown clock. It started ticking in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. That was the beginning of their time out, a time out that was prophesied to last 70 years. And when did the temple get rededicated? When did they have their first service? In 516 BC. Can you do the math? 586 minus 516 is 70 years. The timeout is over, and things can go back to normal. That's what we're being told here. Fensham says here, commenting on verse 19 of chapter 6, with this description, the author wants to stress 
that the religious activities at the temple were normal again, closed quote. And what a perfect service to start up again with. Passover, a celebration of the original redeeming work of God on their behalf. It was perfect. And it was right on time, which actually means that all of the delays, all of the confusion, all of the sinful neglect even, all of that didn't delay this project by a single day. Everything happened on the exact day at the exact time that God had originally ordained. Isn't that amazing? And it's a reminder that there is no need to panic. There is no need to get angry or thrash about. If you're on time out, then it will end when God decrees. For the exiles, this extended time out, this 70-year lockdown, has at last come to an end. They are worshiping. They are together again. And things are getting back to normal. It's a new normal. A smaller poorer, harder, normal. But thanks be to God, it is good. Verse 20. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here we catch a glimpse into this first big festival back in the land. In verse 21, it sounds like some of the Israelite poor who had remained in the land may have repurified themselves so that they could participate. Now, to be clear, these aren't the Samaritans. Their opposition to this community went on long past the date of the rededication of the temple. We read about that in chapter 4. These people were likely poor Jews left to work the land in and around Jerusalem. They had probably fallen into some idolatrous practices. They had certainly fallen out of the habit of biblical worship, but they rededicated themselves and they came back and they worshiped the God of their forefathers. The mention in verse 22 of the king of Assyria is stylistic. Darius was the king of Persia, of course, but as Cyrus before him, he was also called king of Babylon and king of Assyria because those kingdoms had been incorporated into his own. As a Canadian, again, I have no problem understanding this. Most Americans think of Queen Elizabeth as the Queen of England, but she's also the Queen of Canada because our country is a dominion within the British Commonwealth. So this is not a scribal error, as some modern scholars suggest. This is an intentional symbolic reminder. Ezra is reminding the reader that sometimes God uses a king to punish his people, And sometimes he uses a king to restore his people. But they are all as tools before him. The rod may become the staff. The sword may become the trowel. The king's heart, after all, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Thanks be to God. 
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.